You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know him as the author responsible for the novels of the stories of Sherlock Holmes, was also a physician, a doctor. He once wrote, hell, I may say, has long dropped out of the thoughts of every reasonable man. Sir Doyle would get a lot of support for that statement today by many people, not only for those outside the Christian church, but even those within the church, that hell has become a bit outdated, a bit misplaced, a bit unnecessary and overzealous. The idea that untold billions of human beings, including many who seem to be nice, law-abiding citizens, will spend an eternity exposed to God unrelenting punishment, well, is just simply unacceptable to many people. Maybe a bygone era. Even some religious leaders have now rejected the idea, at best offering the idea that those who don't go to heaven, well, they simply cease to exist. What's known as the doctrine of annihilationism. They just no longer exist anymore. Pew Research released the results of a study last year about Americans' belief in heaven and hell. It showed that only about 26% of United States adults believed in neither heaven nor hell. So the majority of which did believe in either heaven or hell, but only 62% of Americans believe in a literal hell. Disappointingly, and more sadly, Of the Americans who are identified as Christians, those who self-identified as Christians, 92% of them believed in some concept of heaven. 8% of professing Christians do not even believe in heaven, let alone hell. Some of which actually believe in reincarnation, that after you die, you come back as something else. While there's literally not a scriptural verse in all of the Bible that would support this, Nevertheless, Christians have long ago closed their Bibles, can't even find one to read one, and have begun to believe what they just seem like makes more sense, seems more sensible and reasonable. Well, today, we don't want to ask Americans what they think. Today, we want to ask Jesus, what does he think? And we don't have to guess. We can read it for ourselves. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. If you're just joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, the first record in the New Testament of the teachings and miracles of Jesus. This man who claimed to be from God, actually being God himself, Matthew's actually documenting and showing he is. He is exactly who he says he is. And one of the most common ways Jesus refers to himself in the gospel accounts is with this title, the Son of Man. 
because it's a reference back to the book of Daniel, where the Ancient of Days, a reference to God the Father, looks at all of his creation and says, who is worthy? One who is like the Son of Man is what Daniel prophesies. So every time Jesus keeps referencing in regards to himself this title, the Son of Man, he is speaking to Jewish ears that know exactly what he is claiming, that he is indeed God himself. We have been for the last several weeks in Matthew 24 and 25, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, a fancy way of saying basically a sermon he is giving to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, where he is giving this description. And today, if you could sort of summarize today's message, we will learn that everyone will be held accountable and will go to either heaven or hell. Everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in this country, everyone in this world that has ever lived, that is ever living now, and will ever live until Christ returns, will either go to heaven or hell and be held accountable accordingly. So there's three things we're going to learn. Number one, Jesus will judge the entire world. We'll see that in verses 31 to 33 of Matthew 25. Secondly, some people will go to heaven, verses 34 to 40. Thirdly, some people will go to hell, verses 41 to 46. It's plain, nothing spectacular, but we try to decode it, but we want to understand it because it's profound in its implications. So with that in mind, read along with me as I read out loud, Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. Jesus is speaking here and says the following. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. First of all, Jesus will judge the entire world. Last year, there's an article written, tragically, in the state of Alabama, about a judge named Judge Les Hayes. He was an Alabama judge who once sentenced a single mother to 496 days in jail for failing to pay her traffic tickets. The sentence was so extreme that the jail time Alabama exceeded what even the jail time Alabama allows for negligent homicide. Marquita Johnson, who was locked up in April of 2012, says the impact of her time in jail endures today. Johnson's three children were cast into foster care while she was incarcerated during which time one of her children was molested, another one was physically abused, the consequence will ripple through their life for the rest of their life. According to the Judicial Inquiry Commission, Judge Hayes broke state and federal laws by jailing Johnson and hundreds of other Montgomery, Alabama residents too poor to pay fines. Among those he jailed was a plumber struggling to make rent, a mother who skipped meals to cover the medical bills of her disabled son, and a hotel housekeeper working her way through college. Yet, he was never removed as a judge over his 20 years. After 20 years, he retired. Later, when interviewed, he said he finally became very remorseful for his misdeeds. It has been said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Meaning that when a person has this kind of power over people or things, it makes him corrupt. We come to Matthew 25, and we see a judge that's not anything like Judge Hayes. For there's nothing corrupt in him There's no imperfection. There's no lack of wisdom. There's no mixed motives. In fact, you can see so clearly in the text what it says there, as Jesus referring to himself, of which he would clearly recognize in verse 21, excuse me, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, referring to the return of Christ, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. It's, it's a sort of compounding terminology. He in his glory, on his glorious throne, attended by his angels, which themselves will be glorious. This triumphant reality of the divinity of Christ being seen in all of his glory without in any way, in any hint of imperfection, nothing but divine rep- representation of his power, of his righteousness. 
Even Paul later on in Acts chapter 17, when he's having a conversation with a city of people, having a sermon, if you will, with a bunch of non-Christians who are worshiping all kinds of things, but the wrong thing. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive you to be a religious people. And he goes on to speak about this statue they have to this unknown God. He says, I want to tell you about that God. He says, that God is the one true God who created everything and determined everything, all the countries and the places in which people will be live and die. And he says, that God actually will send his son to judge the world according to his righteousness. You see, friends, when Jesus sits on the throne and judges, it's not according to any other standard of righteousness except God's righteousness, of which he is the embodiment of. For God himself is perfect in all his ways divine in all of his actions, and Jesus will indeed judge. This contradicts often what we think of Jesus. I think if we're honest, perhaps just with a cursory reading of the Bible, we might think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit as so distinct that they're almost sometimes contradicting. Almost like God the Father looks like he's quite upset in the Old Testament Oh, to be relieved by God the Son who shows up in the New Testament. And he seems to be quite nice, saying things like, turn the other cheek. And God the Spirit, well, he seems to be, I don't know, maybe kind of like a spiritual version of cast for the ghost, just sort of making things better. And really kind of describing a God of our own creation, but not one of divine revelation. What we see here is that the same God who hung on the tree to make payment for sin is the same God who returns back to judge sinners in their sin. We see that so clearly here in the text. What is it that he will do? He says he will separate people one from another. Every individual God knows, every individual God cares about, every individual will have to give an account to God the Son. This is significant. It's significant because we see that judgment comes for everybody, one from another. And then he uses this sort of old language of depiction that would be meaningful that we can still recognize here as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's sort of setting aside, placing the sheep on his right, but the, the goats on his left. This is significant because of what this means and the reality of this. This idea of being at Jesus' right hand is not because Jesus somehow favors right-handed versus left-handed, as if that's the point of reference. Instead, the Bible commonly presents the right hand as the hand of strength. Think about this in Exodus 15 and the psalmist as well. Sitting at someone's right hand in the scripture is considered a position of honor. We see this in Psalm 110, for example. The Lord will have his Lord sit at his right hand. What we see here is the significance of what Jesus is describing in his own return in the future, putting those at his right hand. Which takes us now, secondly, some people will go to heaven. Some people will go to heaven. Look at what it says there in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We see this invitation, this opportunity, what this looks like and, and how it's being laid out before him. It sort of puts together the pieces for us. 
by show of hands, how many of you have ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? More than I expected. Yeah, if you those who have never, never seen a jigsaw puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle is basically a picture printed on a piece of cardboard that's been cut up in a bunch of different small pieces that range from like 50 to 5,000. And the picture can range as wide as, you know, some beautiful sunset or cityscape, some abstract picture to maybe a, a picture of somebody. And you got to put it all together. And for anybody who's done one of these jigsaw puzzles, a number of you have, you know what this is like. You're like trying to kind of figure out what to do. And you, you kind of got to get the edges, right? You kind of get the corners. Okay, that's a corner piece. That's a corner piece. And you try to match the, the colored temple. Okay, I think this is going on and think what's happening. But there's nothing more maddening to get to that piece of the puzzle where you're like, I can't find all the pieces. Like, is it in the box? Is it on the ground? Is it in the table? Maybe somebody who had used it before broke it apart, put it back together, but maybe someone actually missed some of the pieces. Or all the pieces are present, but something is out of line, something's out of whack, and so that color doesn't match, or that eye is where the hand should be, and you know that that's not right. This is how a lot of people come to the topic of heaven and hell. The pieces are all out of order. They don't see the picture clearly. And Jesus wants to lay it before us clearly, that we might see all the pieces of the puzzle and have it be a clear representation of what he is saying the future looks like. And he says that here in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. How are they blessed? Well, it talks about a kingdom that's been prepared beforehand from the foundation of the world. This reminds us of what it says in Ephesians chapter one. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. As Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter one, as he speaks about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and what God is doing in salvation. And just listen as I read this to you. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, for which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him and things in heaven and things on earth. The salvation is divine in its origin and it's eternal in its design. And he says for them to be at his right hand. But then in verses 35, these people who, who are part of this, it's by their actions, and it seems kind of surprising. In fact, if you look at the word kingdom in verse 34, it says, inherit the kingdom. This is nothing new. You remember that we talked about this last week, and just again and again, over and over, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 25, verse 1. Chapter 25, verse 14, he references it in passing. We continue to see him speaking about just the kingdom of heaven is what he's talking about. Chapter 22, uh, verse 2, chapter 21, uh, verse 31 is always, well, now he's talking about the culmination of the kingdom, a synonym for heaven. And he says, those who go are because of what they have done. 
which you're like, wait a minute. Is Jesus saying that salvation is by works? Is that, what, is that what he's talking about? If that's a question you have, that would be an understandable question. Do I need to get busy getting clothes for naked people, visiting people in prison, visiting people who are sick? Do I, do I need to get busy in that? Is that what he is saying I need to be doing? And, and I've, if I do that enough, he's like, okay, you've logged enough time, you can enter into heaven. It's actually not what he's saying. Though understandably, it's easy to think that's what he's saying. What I want you to recognize is how he addresses them. He talks about you who are blessed, verse 34 of Matthew 25. But then, in verse 37, it says, then the righteous will answer him. Jesus gives them this title, righteous. But the title righteous is a declaration of their personhood, not, first and foremost, their practice. Not first and foremost to practice. In other words, what you're seeing here in the text is that Jesus is laying before his disciples and for all of us to read in the years that would follow as we, this word has been captured for us, that this is not about the practice of their salvation, it's about the root of their salvation. What Jesus is talking about in all their actions is the fruit that bears out on their life because of the root of their trust and faith in Christ. The righteous inheriting the kingdom, not because of the compassionate works that they have done, but because of the righteous that comes from transformed hearts, which responds in compassion. In fact, notice the description given here as he says, what you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. The significance of this and how he describes this, and presumably even to the reality of those who are also fellow disciples, fellow followers of Christ. It's worth considering the reality that the body of Christ should be the best place to have needs. Because the body of Christ should be the best place where you can find people to be glad to meet those needs. To serve you, to care for you, to pray for you, to visit you, to clothe you, to feed you, to come alongside you. By no means limited there, but as even Paul would say, that we should be known for doing good, especially to those in the household of faith. When Jesus is speaking here about the significance of heaven, this kingdom prepared for you, you inheriting that kingdom. The apostle John was privileged to see and report on the heavenly city in Revelation. John witnessed that heaven possesses the glory of God. It's the very presence of God because heaven has no night and the Lord himself is the light. The sun and the moon are no longer even needed in heaven. The city of heaven is filled with the, the brilliance of costly stones and crystal clear jasper. The paradise of the Garden of Eden is restored. There is no more death. In fact, it's just a place of everything being no more. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more separation because death has been conquered. The best thing about heaven is the presence of the Lord and Savior. We'll be face to face with the Lamb of God who took away our sins. In his death, we found eternal life through faith alone in him. We should not expect people to arrive at the truth of who God is or where salvation is found or the teachings of heaven or hell apart from the word of God. And that's exactly what God has given us in this record that Matthew has given. 
which takes us to the third lesson. Some people will go to hell. Some people will go to hell. Let me just say at the outset to acknowledge what perhaps some of you have thought or maybe you're thinking now. Perhaps some of you think, even as Christians, that hell is a doctrine, hell is a teaching that makes you want to blush. Almost makes you want to apologize for God. On behalf of God, I'd like to say I'm sorry, but there's this thing called hell. In fact, I'd prefer not to just talk about it at all. That might be what some of you are thinking. It's not an uncommon temptation for even Christians to think that way. But if you think that way, you'd be thinking wrongly about what hell is and who God is and how you should be thinking about it. And it's something that we should all think very sober-mindedly about it. So let's go back to the text. Jesus, referring to himself as a son of man in the future, says in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes on to basically repeat the same things that was being expected but was not done. And he says at the very end there in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Now, may I remind you of what Jesus said himself earlier in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Arguably the most famous sermon ever preached in human history, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself was proclaiming it to a crowd of thousands of people, everything from the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are gentle, to hey, you should not lust. A man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, has had an affair with her, to anger, you even had hatred in your heart, you've committed murder, to hypocrisy, why do you take worry about everybody else's life, why don't you take care of your own issues, judgmentalism. But the very end of that, in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says something very significant. It's very sober-minded because it calls to attention what we should recognize. And this idea of bearing fruit and, what, and, the, and the, the significance of what's being said here about the narrow gate and the wide gate. He says in verse 13 of Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, but leads to life, and those who find it are few. And he goes on to speak about the tree and its fruit. Listen to what he says in verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I, ne I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why am I referencing Matthew 7 as we're in Matthew 25? Because I want you to recognize the same Jesus speaking in Matthew 25 spoke in Matthew 7, and that is, I want you to get clarity and distinction. What he's talking about in Matthew 7 is, if your life is built on Jesus Christ, by faith alone and Christ alone, then you can have assurance, no matter what comes up against your life, nothing will knock you over, you can have peace with God and the hope of eternal life and heaven to come. 
But if your life is not built on the cornerstone, it's not built on the foundation of Christ, then no matter what you don't do, Matthew 25, or what you do, Matthew 7, it doesn't matter if it's not built on Christ. That Jesus will say those same words in Matthew 7 as he says in Matthew 25. Depart from me, you cursed. And he begins to give a description of hell. What is hell? Well, Jesus describes it repeatedly throughout his teachings as a place of eternal fire, eternal punishment, outer darkness, that there will be what we saw earlier in the text, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go back to chapter 25, verse 30. This says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go back to chapter 24, verse 51. There will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, chapter 22, verse 13, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a, a place where the wrath of God is experienced by unbelievers in hell, completely and finally alienated from God's love, mercy, and grace. Sometimes people will try to represent hell as if it's the place where God is absent. Friend, God is not absent in hell. God is overwhelmingly present in hell. He is present in all of his attributes of righteous, holy judgment. Some people think that such a place with such a description for such a time makes God cruel. It's impossible for God to be cruel, though. Cruelty involves inflicting a punishment that is more severe or harsh than the crime. Cruelty, in that sense, would be unjust. But God is incapable of inflicting an unjust punishment. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? No innocent person will ever suffer at God's hand. Someone perhaps is asking, how can a loving God create hell, believe hell? How can we, be a loving Christian, teach hell? Many people believe that hell is totally incompatible with the idea of a loving God. The argument here is that sending people to hell is not a loving thing to do, so, so God could just never do it. God's love is beyond question. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love, it says. The problem is when we triage God's attributes to be in a line, in an order, that puts them against each other. A more appropriate way to think about the attributes of God is to start with his holiness. The holiness of God. His holy love, his holy justice, his holy grace. Everything about God is holy. God is called by his name holy more than any other description taken together. God has zero tolerance for sin. Habakkuk says that God is of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Habakkuk 1.13. Listen to what John Blanchard writes. He says, the question hell's undertakers should be asking is, how can a God of holiness allow anyone into heaven? As all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And as nothing unclean will ever enter heaven, Revelation 21.27. They face a difficult task. So the question is not, why does God send anybody to hell? The question is, why does God send anybody 
to heaven. If we have an accurate view of humanity and an accurate view of God's deity. There are those who still reject a sense in which God sends nobody to hell, but that people send themselves there. If you think about that, I mean, think about just the reality that those who are in hell are there because they commission themselves in a sense. Think about Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God was revealed his eternal power, his divine nature, ever since the creation of the world, and all those who reject his revelation are without excuse. J.I. Packer says it like this, nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action and wrath is to give men what they choose. In all of its implications, nothing more and equally nothing less. C.S. Lewis writes, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. This is the beauty of expository preaching. Whatever the text says, the preacher says. The challenge is when churches today leapfrog around Bible passages to tell people just the things that they want to hear and not the things that they need to hear. The challenge is what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that the time will come when people surround themselves with teachers that will want to tickle their ears. Friends, I, I hope you hear my heart today in speaking this message to you. It literally is just what's next in the text. Next time it'll be Matthew 26. But I think what's so significant is to recognize Jesus tells us the truth. Not our professors in college, not our family members, not our own modern sensibilities of what we think is right and wrong. Jesus, the king who sits on the throne at the right hand of the father, who judges the world according to his righteousness, he tells us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, helping us as God himself. For those of you who are in Christ, the reality of this, both the significance of heaven and hell, is profound. Because to speak to all of you who are Christians, there's nothing you or I deserve other than hell. Everything else beyond that is grace. Everything beyond that is grace. You continuing to live as grace, possess beings and objects and possessions, grace. Have your mental and, and visual and hearing capacity, all of it is grace. Everything we have is grace. And then God overwhelmingly, grace upon grace, saves us, forgives us, adopts us, cares for us, provides for us, and promises to return for us. And or as Paul says in Philippians 2, absent from the body is present of the Lord to take us to be with him. It's not a miracle that someone goes to hell. It's a miracle that someone goes to heaven. And if you're a Christian, that's a miracle. As it describes there, those of you who are blessed by my Father, 
What does that do for the Christian sitting here today? Thankfulness, humility, and urgency. Thankfulness, humility, and urgency. Thankfulness for what you've been given. Humility that you do not deserve it. Urgency that you see how real it is, this conversation we're having, and your care for those around you. It is an urgent conversation that has eternal implications. For those of you who are not in Christ, I don't in any way mean that to describe that as an unloving way. I mean to say that just as an honest assessment that you know of yourself. I don't even perhaps know of you that your faith is not in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You're looking to or have looked to or hoping for something else to kind of earn merit with God. Friends, I mean to tell you right now, if you continue to think that what you are deluding yourself, you're choosing some other way than the way that God has laid before all men, as it says in John 14, 6, that Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's nothing more loving I can do with you. No, there, there's no greater hug I can give you, no greater handshake I can offer you, no greater possession I can give to you than to give you the truth of the reality that there is a God who keeps his word as a representation of his integrity and his holiness. That rebels will be consequently judged for eternity corresponding to their act of treason against the holy God. But he has provided a way of escape, only one way, but is a miraculous way through his son who would die on the cross to make payment for sin. That all those who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ could be forgiven. That you could literally go from your biography is verses 41 to 46 to now your biography is verses 34 to 40. The question is, where is your biography written in the text of Matthew 25 this morning? Where do I put your name in my Bible? Where do your initials go? For you, Christian, do not push the thought of heaven or hell to the back of your mind. Let God be glorified by his holiness being proclaimed. The reality of hell be more sobering. The author of the sun be more profound. The assurance of heaven be more sweet. And may Christian songs be sung more loudly by the saints of God who believe in the truth that we have just read that Jesus has preached to his disciples then and now that we'll have a chance to sing now together after I pray. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.